0: Hello, and welcome to the final episode in our three-part podcast series, which seeks to understand financial crime compliance in the context of cryptocurrencies and cryptocurrency exchanges. My name is Anna Blizzard, and I'm a Managing Director in FTI Consulting's Financial Crime Compliance Practice. Here to moderate with me is my colleague and Southeast Asia Practice co-leader, Drew McCarthy. Throughout this podcast series, we've been hearing from experts from Skadden Arps, Crypto.com, and FDI on the latest issues and trends impacting the use of cryptocurrencies and crypto exchanges and broader financial crime compliance considerations. Today's conversation represents the third and final in our series. Our last episode examined how organizations are implementing financial crime compliance programs in this evolving space. Today's episode seeks to build from that discussion to discuss the specific financial crime threats and vulnerabilities faced by the industry today and in the future. This entire space has been evolving at breakneck speed, and the ways in which financial crime is being perpetrated is becoming more and more technologically sophisticated. When you look at cryptocurrencies and crypto exchanges, there are some interesting risks and threats that are developing, which we will look to explore further during our discussion today. Today, I'm joined by my colleague Kyung Kim, Senior Managing Director and Head of FTI's APAC Cybersecurity Practice, and Boris Rashad, Managing Director in FTI's Disputes Practice. I'm also joined by Aitan Fish and Javier Abina, both from Skadden Arps Financial Institutions Regulation Enforcement Practice. Thanks so much for your time today, everybody. Let's get started. I'd first like to understand the US view on um, threats and vulnerabilities. Javier, could you tell us about some of the key trends that you're seeing in the US government's enforcement of financial crime abuse in the crypto space?
1: Thank you, Anna. Recent reports and, and enforcement actions by the US government suggest that we will likely see an increasing amount of legislation, regulation, investigation, and enforcement activity surrounding virtual currencies particularly as the associated technology changes and there is a greater understanding of the vulnerabilities of such technology. I think before we discuss enforcement trends in the United States, it would be helpful to briefly outline the landscape of US regulatory and enforcement agencies that have the ability to bring anti-money laundering and sanctions-related enforcement actions against virtual currency businesses. First, the Financial Crimes Enforcement Network, or FINCEN, administers and enforces anti-money laundering laws and regulations for US financial institutions, including virtual currency businesses that engage in money transmission. Second, the Office of Foreign Assets Control, or OFAC, administers and enforces U.S. economic sanctions, and has the ability to bring enforcement actions against virtual currency businesses for sanctions violations. Third, the U.S. Department of Justice has jurisdiction and flexibility to bring enforcement actions related to crimes involving virtual assets, including criminal violations of anti-money laundering and economic sanctions laws. Fourth, banking regulators, such as the Federal Reserve and the Office of the Controller of the Currency, or the OCC, have the authority to bring enforcement actions against the banks they supervise, who may have customers that DON or offer products and services related to virtual assets. And lastly, US states have the authority to bring action against virtual currency businesses that operate in their state and are subject to the state's money transmission or equivalent laws. We also have to keep in mind that to the extent a particular cryptocurrency or digital asset is considered a security or commodity, the Securities and Exchange Commission or SEC or the Commodity Futures Trading Commission or CFTC may have jurisdiction to bring enforcement actions against issuers of those assets. Over the last few years, we have seen US regulators and prosecutors focus on virtual currency businesses operating without a license or registration or without adequate anti-money laundering controls. For example, in 2017, we saw an enforcement action by FinCEN in the Department of Justice against an Eastern European-based company that operated globally as an unlicensed virtual currency exchange and allegedly laundered and liquidated criminal proceeds from virtual currency to fiat currency. Also in October of last year, FinCEN assessed a $60 million dollar civil money penalty against the founder and operator of Two convertible virtual currency exchangers for willful violations of anti-money laundering laws. According to FinCEN, the two companies were unregistered money transmitters and operated as a Bitcoin mixer or tumbler. FinCEN contended that the founder of these companies never implemented an AML compliance program and failed to develop internal policies and procedures and internal controls and also to appoint a compliance officer or file suspicious activity reports. Just last October, the Department of Justice published a framework that provided a comprehensive overview of the emerging threats and ongoing enforcement challenges associated with the increasing prevalence and use of cryptocurrency. The Department of Justice outlined various priorities in the framework, but warrant a closer look. For example, the Department of Justice indicated that it will use every tool in its toolbox to deal with cryptocurrency, including interagency and international cooperation. Virtual currencies will clearly continue to be a priority for the Department of Justice. The Department of Justice also emphasized that it has robust authority to prosecute virtual asset service providers and other entities and individuals that violate US law even when they are not located in the US. As we have previously discussed, the Bank Secrecy Act applies to entities and individuals that engage in money transmission and conduct business wholly or in substantial part in the United States, regardless of where they are incorporated or headquartered. In a recent enforcement action, actually, the Department of Justice indicted founders and executives of a cryptocurrency exchange and derivatives platform located in Seychelles for anti-money laundering violations. The Department of Justice alleges that the company's executives solicited and accepted customers and operated in the United States without complying with U.S. anti-money laundering requirements. The Department of Justice has indicated that three types of unlawful activities associated with cryptocurrencies underpin its enforcement actions related to virtual assets. First, the Department of Justice will focus on financial transactions associated with the commission of crimes such as terrorism and drug trafficking. The second focus will be on money laundering and the shielding of legitimate activity from tax reporting or other legal requirements. For example, operating on licensed money services businesses or money services businesses that don't have compliance programs in place. And third, the focus will be on crimes such as theft and fraud, directly implicating the cryptocurrency marketplace itself. Aside from these enforcement trends, we are also seeing an interesting trend with respect to the way certain federal banking regulators, such as the OCC, are showing support for the involvement of banks in the cryptocurrency space. For example, the OCC confirmed last year that banks can offer custodial services for virtual assets and provide products and services to virtual asset service providers. The OCC has also clarified that national banks may hold reserves as a service to bank customers who issue certain types of stablecoins. Now, that said, the OCC has also cautioned that banks need to have appropriate controls and conduct sufficient due diligence commensurate with the risks associated with engaging in these virtual currency related activities. As a matter of fact, in February of 2020, a New York based bank was subject to an enforcement action by the OCC for not having appropriate controls in place to manage the risks associated with accounts that it maintained for a variety of virtual asset service providers. The OCC found that the bank did not have sufficient KYC or suspicious activity monitoring controls. While the first of its kind, as more banks provide virtual asset related services, the OCC and other banking regulators may increase their focus on ensuring that the bank's AML controls are adequate and commensurate with the risks associated with such activity.
0: There's been a huge level of enforcement action around global banks over the last 10 to 15 years. And from what you've said, there's now an increasing focus, in the US at least, on enforcement action for cryptocurrencies. And whilst we see that banking regulators are trying to welcome cryptocurrency businesses, the message is clear that banks must ensure that there are appropriate controls in place to mitigate the risks. And Antonio Alvarez highlighted some of the challenges that crypto exchanges are facing back in episode two, when he said that banks were imposing even tougher standards on crypto exchanges than the regulators do. So it seems like it's all filtering down. Eitan, should we expect a similar flurry of enforcement activity in the crypto space? And do you think this will extend to Asia?
2: Thanks, Um, I do think we're going to see kind of a trend of increased enforcement in the space. I think, I think there's a few reasons for it, but I also think it's going to take on a couple of dynamics. One is I think we will see continued coordination, right, across agencies within the US government, right? So as we've already seen, FinCEN with DOJ, CFTC with DOJ, the SEC in the mix as well. So I think we will see kind of continued and perhaps even increased coordination among US regulatory and criminal enforcement um, bodies. But I also think we may see, uh, as we've seen increasingly in the AML space more generally, increasing enforcement between jurisdictions, uh, whether it's the US and UK or the US and other uh, other uh, countries' regul- regulators. I, I do think we'll see some of that in this space as we go forward, because I think that's a that's a trend we're seeing more more generally uh, in a number of areas. In terms of kind of increased enforcement, I I, I do think we're going to see it, and I think there's a few reasons for it. So one is, as with kind of, as as a new and evolving technology, regulators um, have been learning. Right, they've been playing catch up. And I think that it's clear that they are at a point now where they have a better understanding of the technology, uh, what it can do, what risks presents, how they're going to approach it from a regulatory standpoint. So I think they have been playing catch up, and I think the spate of guidance over the last year, in particular, is an indication that they they feel kind of positioned. Uh, to kind of take the next step. And oftentimes that next step beyond merely providing guidance is, is enforcement, uh, both for for the purpose of, of kind of past violations, but also to kind of send a certain message and to uh, create guidance in that fashion as well. So I, I think that's one aspect of why we'll see enforcement regulators in a different position today than they were in a few, a few years ago from, a, from an understanding perspective. I think the other piece as with any new technology, any new field, you know, I think a lot of times, again, particularly in the tech space, businesses can grow quickly. And as they do, uh, it's not uncommon for there to be in the early stages, less attention to compliance. Um, that's just kind of the nature of the beast often. Uh, and so at least less attention to compliance than regulators might expect. Uh, which means that there may be some compliance gaps that, particularly with this kind of newfound understanding, that regulators and prosecutors uh, may see as an opening. I think the third the third consideration here, which which we spoke about in some of the earlier sessions, is that there has been a shortage of guidance, um, both within the U.S. I think, but also in, in jurisdictions outside the U.S. There's been a shortage of guidance a shortage of guidance for several years regarding what the specific regulatory expectations are. It's not always been clear. Uh, Companies, uh, businesses of all sorts have been trying to kind of understand both both what the the regulatory requirements are and what regulator expectations are. And I think kind of as a last last point, um, there is a large number of actors in this space And there is a perception, as I think Antonio Alvarez mentioned in an earlier uh, session, there is a perception, whether deserved or not, that this is a high-risk area with a real potential for abuse and the facilitation of criminal activity. And that means regulators have a number of targets they can potentially go after, a number of businesses, just again, sheer numbers, Um, but they're they're also going to be very focused on this area in particular because of the perception of high risk and potential for abuse. In terms of what does this mean for Asia, I think a couple of things. One is uh, there's been a bit of a pivot to Asia in the enforcement, financial, in the financial crime enforcement space from a US standpoint. I think we see sanctions and anti money laundering cases increasingly focused on Asia. Uh, We see policy increasingly focused on Asia, uh, oftentimes related to China. Uh, with increased sanctions um, with increased sanctions being applied to China and Chinese companies, and you know, increased focus on a particular region, uh, with increased restrictions that apply to actors in those regions, um, means there's more opportunity for for enforcement as well. Um, but I do think that kind of, you know, for a number of years, as Javier noted, a lot of the big bank cases, We're very Europe-focused. And there's been, I think, a bit of a shift uh, by regulators Say, let's look elsewhere uh, in the world. Where where do we go next, so to speak? And and I think they have set their sights for a number of reasons on on Asia. I think the other thing um, is that there is a lot of crypto activity in Asia. Um, So again, to that point about there being a number of actors, when you take kind of a large number of actors in the crypto space in Asia, coupled with these this kind of policy or enforcement pivot to Asia, I think that that lands you in a place where I think it's I think it should be expected that um, Asia will be a key component of the U.S. enforcement landscape moving forward in this area.
0: Thanks, Aten. That's really interesting. Sounds like we're expecting to see quite an increase in enforcement over the coming years, including here in Asia, and no doubt more investigations and litigation in this area. Boris, turning to you, what are you currently seeing and what do you think we're likely to see in the future?
3: Sure, um, I would happy uh, to chime in here. Uh, we are seeing, uh, we're seeing a few, a few trends and I'm gonna talk a little bit about uh, the cases that are currently ongoing versus what I believe we're likely to see um, in, the, in the near future. So on the one hand, um, as you may know, the, uh, the COVID crisis and the tumble in, in cryptocurrency prices uh, in March and April, they brought a whole stream of class actions Uh, in the Southern District of New York. Um, And uh, those class actions were basically um, alleging the violation of uh, Section 5 of the Securities Act. So effectively, the allegations were brought against seven ERC-20 token issuers. So those tokens that are issued, at least originally on the Ethereum platform. And we have also seen four class actions against uh, uh, for centralized crypto exchanges, in particular, Binance, Bbox, BitMEX, and KuCoin. Uh, and we know that at least two of them are, are definitely uh, sort of, you know, concentrated in, in Asia. Um, and again, uh, the, there were two types of allegations in those private class actions. The first one, again, that either tokens were supposed to be registered as securities under the federal law, and they were not registered. Uh, or alternatively, the exchanges were also alleged to be uh, transacting in something that was securities, and they did not have proper registrations um, as, as either exchanges or, or, or broker dealers. So I think some of these class actions are still ongoing, uh, and you know, it would be interesting to monitor what, what happens on that front. Uh, in terms of the violation of registration requirements, the SEC is still active. Um, the, uh, and we will see a similar type of actions from the Securities and Exchange Commission going forward. And uh, the testament to that, you know, fairly recent uh, consent orders that were concluded between the SEC and Unicorn, as well as the SEC and Salt Lending. And in both cases, again, there were season desist orders. Uh, there were settlements uh, without the admission of guilt, but nevertheless, the SEC, you know, got what they wanted. So they believe that those tokens were securities under the, you know, 1933 Act, and they should have been registered. Uh, and um, as from our own experience, the SEC is still looking into the issuance practices that date back to 2017. Uh, and, uh, you know, we are getting engaged in some of the investigations that the Securities and Exchange Commission is conducting against, uh, you know, certain token issuers uh, and the ICOs that happened uh, back in 2017. So uh, the second big trend that we're seeing, uh, and again, it's comprised of both outstanding cases and especially the either litigation or investigation that will be launched in the future, that relates to orderly markets. And the market manipulation, and again, that's a, that's a concern on everybody's mind. Um, you know, as much as you have a proliferation on both centralized exchanges and decentralized exchanges, um, the potential for market manipulation increases. And in terms of the uh, in terms of the outstanding uh, uh, matters, again, we know that in April, part of the allegation against Bitmax was that they manipulated. Um, you know the benchmarks in spot cryptocurrencies on different exchanges, with the alleged uh, uh, reason or uh, as an alleged attempt to uh, effectively stop out their customers at the wrong prices on their leveraged positions and make money on those uh, improper liquidations of the margin customer positions in the derivatives. Uh, we know that uh, you know, there is a class, there is you know market manipulation claims have, have also been brought against FTX another trading exchange. It was brought against Ripple, which is still kind of going through the uh, through the uh, judicial system. And we know that the private class action against Bit, Bitfinex is still uh, uh, you know going on in the Southern District of New York. And moreover, we know that there were two defendants added to that particular. A lawsuit to U.S. exchanges Poloniex and Bittrex, and the allegation is that they somehow added, aided, uh, you know, the manipulation of the Bitcoin price uh, by allowing some of the flows to be, you know, uh, executed through through their channels. And again, if to to remind the listener, the Bitfinex um, and uh, is, is accused of issuing Tether. Uh, in order to manipulate the price of Bitcoin back in late 2017, early 2018. So I think market manipulation claims will remain uh, and continue to be active, especially given that the CFTC is asserting more and more active stance on that part. So uh, both in terms of the spot cryptocurrency uh, markets, as well as the commodity futures, to the extent that all the cryptos are commodities, you know, according to the CFTC, uh, you know, they will be asserting themselves pretty actively in this space. Um, and interestingly enough, we see these market manipulation cases pop up not only in the centralized exchange setting. Uh, we were involved in a particular case that related to decentralized crypto exchange. Um, so, from that perspective, uh, you know, the ability to engage in the wash trades, the ability to engage in other fraudulent types of transactions does not necessarily have to be confined to the centralized exchange world. And we've seen at least one instance and in one of the uh, uh, legal actions brought in the decentralized exchange space. And I think it's just a matter of time uh, before you know, some of the automated automated money makers and DEXs and the DeFi platforms may get drawn into this uh, uh, situations because we are aware of at least several uh, cases or several instances of manipul- manipulating uh, the cryptocurrency prices through um, you know smart contracts um, in 2020. Uh, third, I think uh, there will be more um, legal actions and litigation related to smart contracts because smart contracts are taking the front stage. They are controlling uh, a lot of functioning of illiquidity protocols. They are um, controlling the the processes of depositing and borrowing different cryptocurrencies on the uh, liquidity trading platforms and liquidity pools and we know that smart contracts they critically depend on oracles and to the extent that either the incorrect prices are being fed or or incorrect uh, there are re bugs and other vulnerabilities in the in the smart contract space I would not be surprised to see more legal concerns and legal actions taken there. I mean, we've seen already one, um, you know, a class action against MakerDAO Foundation, which, which was related to um, the liquidation of collateral back in March of 2020 at allegedly extremely low prices, pretty much zero. But I think these smart contract vulnerabilities will eventually uh, give a reason, you know, to claim damages simply because of the Bugs and you know incorrect codes or incorrect pricing oracles or procedure that being coded into those pieces of computer software. So um, I'm not going to touch upon the AML and financial crime compliance that will definitely be very active going forward. And uh, uh, in, you know other participants on this podcast have already spoken at length about it. I think um, you know my final <clears throat> kind of concluding comment would be that it appears that the regulators will be assessing uh, the crypto entities from a regular perspective as whether they have a comprehensive enterprise risk management system going forward. So I'm kind of switching gears a little bit away from the private litigation into what the regulators will be looking into. And it appears more and more likely that regulators will be looking um, on how the enterprise uh, vast are assessing their risks. And the risks come in different shapes and forms and AML and compliance risk is only one of them. But I think that going forward, the enforcement and the regulation of the industry will be based on the concept, do you have a comprehensive enterprise risk management system? What's your financial condition? What's your risk of insolvency? Are you properly reserved in terms of your regulatory capital? Do you have internal controls and audits in place? Again, legal regulatory compliance. How do you assess your risk management practice, including liquidity risk, including collateral risk, including credit risk of your customers, especially for the DeFi platform that are engaged in lending? And finally, is your cybersecurity framework robust? So what do you do to make sure that your authentication protocols are robust and you have appropriate, you know, either data privacy issues or you are safeguarding your customer? and private keys correctly. So from that perspective, it will be really a comprehensive ERM type of approach that regulators will be increasingly taking with respect to the virtual asset providers. And that will guide their regulatory and enforcement actions going forward. Pivoting slightly, I'd like to get Kyung's thoughts. As Boris, Aitan, and Tonio have alluded to, the regulators are broadening their scope across numerous other risk dimensions. And for me, I'm particularly interested in the financial crime cyber nexus. Kyung, you sit at the crosswords of this area, and given your experience in both commercial and public sector work, what are some of your thoughts on where and how this financial crime cyber nexus is developing, both from a threat perspective, but also from a preparedness perspective as well?
4: Thank you, Andrew. Uh, I will go straight, you know, uh, uh, bottom line on top, uh, preparedness. You could do a lot better, obviously, because when when we look at the... uh, economic loss, it's significant, right? It's very significant. And the uh, you know, cryptocurrency is essentially a uh, cash currency and it has attracted a lot of uh, criminals globally, right? And uh, we have seen this, as you mentioned before, in government sector, when I was working at the FBI, you know, they, they don't stop, you know, they can break into crypto exchange, empty your wallets, and infect computers with malware and the, uh, and they still, you know, cryptocurrency, right? As transactions are conducted online, the, the adversaries are targeting the victims and the uh, service handling and storage area by spoofing phishing and malware. Also, the, the investors must rely on the strength of their own computer uh, security system, right? Which can be challenging itself and you also got to rely on the uh, security system provided by, you know, third parties to protect uh, cryptocurrency from being stolen, right? And the approach uh, mentioned before is their cyber platform uh, robust to protect that, right? So when it comes to cybersecurity, um, I want to talk about ransomware, right? Whenever I hear when ransomware, all of us, for me, I instantly think about cryptocurrency, right? As of 2019, approximately. 900 million dollars in bitcoins were spent on dark web, right? Just spent on dark web. I'm sure uh, it's over one billion dollars in 2020. This is global trend, not just Asia or or Europe or Americas, right? There are about 4,000 ransomware attacks per day, right? And it's costing us hundreds of billions of dollars, right? No cyber adversaries want ransom paying cash they all want it in cryptocurrency right these hackers are very sophisticated and, and with their tactics and their methodologies right? and you 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 ask the question uh what is their material level and the um they're constantly evolving you know many of us uh, mentioned them before you know um States, the state sponsor hackers are typically behind uh, many of these attacks. Uh, for example, North Koreans, infamous uh, Lazarus group, and the, uh, for Russians, there's fence Bear, you know, hackers, right? And there are military sponsor hackers who are very well trained and very well funded, right? And they are very good at what they do. And these type of attacks are highly profitable for them, and therefore they are not gonna stop uh, these attacks and the uh, these type of attacks are not gonna slow down in future. As we uh, cybersecurity investigators do conduct um, follow the Sun investigation per se, the adversaries do that as well, right? They have their own hackers, they have their own negotiators, they have uh, someone who deals with cryptocurrency payment. They will teach the client or the victims per se, like step-by-step step how to pay ransom in Bitcoin and how to set up the uh, Bitcoin account, right? And these individuals are, as I mentioned before, they're very sophisticated and they're hard to track down since we are dealing with, uh, unlike law enforcement, right? Um, there are uh, uh, dealing with fast moving crime, cross borders, time difference, as well as their skill sets. Uh, to hide their uh, their their track. however, sometimes you know through hard work and the uh, at the right timing, the adversaries that can get apprehended right law enforcement working with private sectors can be a very effective tool in combating uh, these individuals you know who are uh, still in cryptocurrencies um, doing deep dive analytic uh, investigations, for example, looking into high risk exchange service uh, that serves as cash out points for criminals, for example, perfect example, ransomware, uh, and analyzing uh, user data, DNS records, open source and law enforcement intelligence and the uh, conducting uh, blockchain analysis can lead them to uh, criminals. So. Uh, now, with combination of uh, regulatory development globally, um, I know uh, Ethan mentioned that a trend in, in increase in uh, enforcement is it, a good thing, right? Uh, it, will, uh, it will be a bit safer and more manageable to monitor illicit crypto a- activities. And, and yeah, therefore, um, regulatory development in Asia, I guess globally is a good thing. Uh, We are heading to the right direction to protect the uh, potential victims and to mitigate the uh, cyber threat actors globally.
0: Perfect, thank you Keong. We're actually approaching the end of our final episode. So I think a few themes came out during the episode. I've been scribbling down my notes. Um, The first I have is around enforcement. There's an increased focus on enforcement in the US and with the growth of cryptocurrencies, we expect enforcement to continue to increase. Regulators are also increasingly looking to shift their focus and pivot towards Asia, especially due to the large amount of crypto activity which is happening here. The technology is also new, which makes it a natural target for increased regulatory scrutiny, which is ultimately a good thing, as increased regulation and enforcement will help to make it safer and more manageable to monitor and guard against illicit activity. Secondly, with an increased focus and understanding in this area, regulators are focusing more on risk assessments and looking at whether organizations have comprehensive risk management systems in place, whether they understand the financial risks, their internal controls that they have in place and how they assess liquidity, collateral, credit risk, etc. Also looking at whether their cybersecurity frameworks are adequate. Ultimately, the increased focus and increased regulatory guidelines will help to close some of these loopholes and make sure that we're seeing increased safety in this area. So as we conclude our final episode, I'd like to thank our panel of experts, Kiong, Boris, Eitan and Javier. Thanks again for joining me today and for such a fascinating discussion. Whilst this episode was our last in the series, do feel free to reach out to me or Drew if you'd like to find out more about what we do here at FTI and how we help our clients detect and combat financial crime.